You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're speaking with what might be the most diametric pairing we've ever had, one focused on real estate co-investments in the Midwest, and the other in the perhaps more flashy world of capital introductions at a major bank. Both have at the heart of their part businesses the drive to perform for their clients. Should be an interesting conversation. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome, I'm James Brown with CASA, and this is Alternative Thinking. Today is Friday, September 29th, and today we're speaking with Anthony Guarnieri with uh, Group RMC and Dominic Negrato with Wells Fargo. We'll uh, start with self-introductions. Uh, start with you, Dominic. Thanks, James. As, as you mentioned, this is uh, Dom Negrato, uh, Director of Capital Introductions at Wells Fargo. You know, Prior to Wells Fargo, I spent over 10 years actually as an allocator at Advanced Portfolio Management, where we created kind of bespoke portfolios for endowments and foundations, where I was uh, managing director and, and head of manager research. Great, thanks. So a question I get when I mention these the two little words, cap intro, what exactly is that? And what, how does it fit into, like you're, you say you're with Wells Fargo, which obviously is a, is a bank, but then it has the, the prime, you know, maybe talk about the structure of that for our listeners who aren't as into the, the, the prime lingo. Sure. So James, yeah, I wasn't really familiar with the, the, the prime brokerage lingo until I actually got here because as an allocator, I kind of only knew the, the CI side, but maybe to make it a bit more familiar to people, uh, you know, obviously Wells Fargo is a very large bank. Uh, within Wells Fargo, there is a equity finance and within equity finance, there is a prime brokerage team. Uh, that prime brokerage team has you know, hundreds of clients, many of which are, are hedge funds that we hold very near and dear to us. And within mm-hmm. prime brokerage, we're obviously providing them leverage. We are also providing them, obviously, custody services. Um, and one of the benefits that they receive as being a, a prime brokerage client is business consulting services, as well as capital introduction services. Uh, the capital introduction component can be described in a couple different ways. One would be intelligence with regard to the investor community in terms of mm. what is currently in vogue, uh, what uh, certain investors uh, have an appetite for, obviously, changes over time. Um, it also can be uh, providing them events to display themselves to availing allocators that are intrigued by what they are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also could be really helping them with their pitch, their marketing deck, any sort of associated materials, providing them guidance on best practices and just being an extension of their marketing team. Cool. So not just the uh, extension of loans and getting them borrowed, but also the uh, steak lunches and the hunting and fishing trips to, uh, I guess, get investors <laughs> to uh, to take a look at them. And that's that's all part of it. Like obviously, if you don't have capital to to uh, manage, you don't have much of a capital system. So that's fantastic. Um, 
and I love how you come from the uh, like say the allocator side too with the endowments and foundations because that's a whole whole other area that's uh, kind of different from say what what Anthony's doing in at uh, Group RMC now Anthony you've got a bit of a hybrid thing there with with Group RMC because it's hard to tell if you're a family office or if you are a uh, uh, like an asset manager and out there selling stuff so maybe tell us a bit about uh, about your background and uh, and how Group RMC is structured. Yeah, James, thanks again so much for setting this up. Uh, I'm really happy to be here because uh, you've had some really, really interesting guests in the past. So, so it's really cool to be here. Um, yeah, and I'll tell you a little bit about uh, Group RMC. We're essentially a, a real estate co-investment group. We acquire undervalued uh, properties in secondary markets in the U.S. But to give well, a little bit further back, which is kind of the family office side of things, is you know, we started this back in the 80s. Um, just you know, during the savings and loans crisis, and at this point, it was just wow. really friends and families putting their money together. You know, very informal, nothing, uh, you know, not a, not a business or anything. And then over the years, as we continued to make more um, relationships of, of investors who wanted to participate in our deals, well, essentially our, our co-investment circle continued to grow. And as we gained more access to capital, it provided us the ability to participate in larger and larger deals. And, you know, quietly over the years, we've become the largest landlords in several of the different markets uh, that we operate in in the U.S. And, uh, you know, today we're sitting at $2 billion in assets under management, 18.5 million square feet, uh, and have become landlords to over 2,000 tenants of, of corporate America. Um, and so uh, that, that's, a, that's a little bit of a background of where we come from. And, and to your point, James, given the fact that we are a co-investment group, well, the first thing you need to know you know, we participate with our own equity in every single deal that we do. Uh, and then we raise the remaining equity required uh, across our various channels. And there's essentially two main channels. One of them, where it's basically been the bulk of where we, we you know, we, where we've been raising the equity in the past has been the family office space, just other like-minded investors, family offices, uh, just high net worth investors who want to come in and participate directly in every single deal that we do. Uh, and then the other side of it is also we've launched an evergreen structure. It's, it's an open-ended fund which automatic or which has an lp um structure which automatically participates in every single deal that we do so you essentially have two avenues if you're an allocator and uh, you know and you want to invest on behalf of some of your accredited investors and have them participate directly in every single deal that we do well you have you know the kind of the evergreen structure uh but if you know if you're an investor who kind of likes to pick and choose your own deals and uh, you know, do your own due diligence on, on every single deal, then, you know, you also have the avenue of direct investment in every individual LP. That's interesting because it seems a lot like uh, like the world I've been in for quite a while. Like with hedge funds, like you'd have somebody that's trading their own money and then they go and get some outside investors. And at some point, the outside investors really dwarf them sometimes. Uh, or and then sometimes they go back to being a family office. They so get rid of the other the other investors. But you're you're in a bit of a longer longer cycle here, of course, because you know the real estate doesn't exactly uh, go away. You can't just trade out of it. Um, yeah, a but, really, uh, really cool but, structure there. Well, and that's a good point. I mean, you mentioned you know we, we you know, if we could buy all these deals our, by ourselves, um, you know we would. But the reality is that we're participating in extremely large deals, 100 million, 200, 300 million dollars. So it's, you know, these are very large, uh, substantial size. So even for one family to be able to acquire that on their own is extremely difficult. And so that's kind of why we have this structure and this ability to kind of pool our assets all together and buy these deals that are essentially too large for one family to buy on their own. And also as, you know, again, as, as real estate investors ourselves, we, we fundamentally believe it's, you know, it's better to own a little bit of a lot of real estate versus, oh, yeah. you know, owning a lot of a little bit of real estate. So 
So how does it work between the two structures? So you said some family offices go direct and they'll, I guess they, they don't go into every deal, but then you have the evergreen that it literally goes into every deal. Like there's no cherry picking. If there's 10 deals, evergreen gets a chunk of each of them. And then you'll put your money in, then the, the direct people add it. Or how do you, how do you guys apportion the trades? It's a bit of a, this is a bit of like a public markets thing. The app, yeah. trades in different accounts, but. It's uh, interesting how you do that. Yeah, so it is a little bit of a, a unique setup in the sense that it's we, we basically have a GPLP structure. So for for operational purposes, we are considered the GP, but the GP actually has no uh, economic reasons of existence. We are actually uh, um, uh, limited partners invested in every single deal, and so the way it works is we find a property that you know we want to acquire as a, as, a, as the co investment group. We do our due diligence. Uh, when, you know, once once it passes the test and we like what we have, then. And assuming we win the bid, you know, we get that deal on the contract and then we got to go raise equity uh, to acquire that deal. And so everybody comes in as a limited partner. And like I mentioned, including Group RMC, you know, the partners of Group RMC will come in anywhere between five and 25 percent um, in, in, into every single deal. And then we'll raise the remaining equity across our various channels. So if you're coming in directly, well, you're just going to own a piece of that particular deal. If you're raising equity, or rather, if you're if you're investing through the uh, Evergreen Fund, well, you're going to own a diverse pool of properties. You know, a piece of 14 million, 15 million almost square feet, going back to uh, its inception mm-hmm. date of September of 2016. But what's important to know is that we, we don't have a blind pool of capital. We we raise capital for a specific deal, and then we, so we deploy that that capital into that particular deal. Uh, mm-hmm. As an investor, it's really up to you, kind of what you want to experience. You know, do you want to experience you know more specific deal picking? Or would you just kind of want to have a no, you know, not think about it and just be automatically diversified, uh, and you know, you never really have to think about ongoing due diligence or anything like that. You just kind of do your due diligence once on us. You understand our philosophy and you kind of come in through the fund. Or you know, like if you're more of a hands-on and, and you you know you like and you understand real estate and you kind of want to be part of the due diligence, um, then you you actually have the option to kind of pick and choose the deal you want. But in the end. You know the equity we raise; it always goes towards a specific deal. So everybody comes under the same ownership level, as, you know, same, uh, uh, you know, same, same, same. You know, and again, that equity is being deployed towards the same deal. That's cool. I see, Dom, have you seen this sort of thing happen with the um, in the hedge fund space and that, or or uh, is this more particular to real estate where you have a um, like an like you says the Evergreen Fund or something that's that's for everybody, and then you have other people doing. Direct deals. It's almost like um, it's like a co-investor, a co-investor sort of thing. Does this happen? <laughs> maybe maybe it happens more in the states. I don't know because there are a lot more side cards. There's a lot more PE. Everything in Canada and hedge fund land is basically ninety nine percent public market. So yeah. So uh, you know, it is interesting. Anthony and, and, and Group RMC have have a very unique structure with the fact that the the family office is the GP, but they're they're obviously an LP, and I think they also have a. Uh, you know, minimal management fees, and they, they structure it a lot differently than I've seen with some co-invest in, in North America for sure. But what I would say on the on the hedge fund side, um, a lot of times what you'll see is there certainly is a let's say a co-investment vehicle, right? Where it's like a co-mingled fund. Mm. Uh, it, it could maybe it has one uh, deal in it. It could have it could have a bunch. Um, so it, it's certainly contingent upon the manager. So there, there, there definitely is an, an evergreen component. But a lot of times what happens is, which is different from Group RMC, is a lot of times, particularly in the hedge fund space, um, you will have a manager who will have a, a core 
fund, right? You know, whatever it may be. And then they will mm -hmm. launch a co-investment vehicle, which is meant to size up something within the main fund that frankly, uh, maybe for risk management purposes can't be there, or maybe they want to have additional control and some sort of security. And so it's actually to the benefit of the manager, in, in which case they would launch kind of this like co-mingled fund, which LPs can uh, gain access to. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot and a lot of times with those is basically uh, zero management fee um, and, and maybe, uh, you know, like a 10% performance fee or something to, to that extent. Uh, so a, a little, a little differentiated there, but you do see it. And there are, as Anthony mentioned, it's, it's interesting that they have kind of the, the evergreen and then like a deal by deal basis, because depending on who you talk to, some people love to underwrite the deal kind of alongside the, the GP, uh, cause mm -hmm. they have teams internally that have the ability to do so. It also gives allocators, um, a better sense, frankly, of like the due diligence process in terms of their underwriting, right? Because they open up deal rooms associated with everything. And uh, other times people are like, listen, Group RMC knows what they're doing. They've been doing it for a while, right? Like, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here. I want, I pick managers. Therefore, I want to be in every deal that they, they're in. And I'm, I'm going to essentially take the, the weighted average performance of, of those deals over the course of time. And they just want to pick the, you know, the right, the right manager, so to speak. So giving those different options actually is beneficial because not all allocators are created equal. Yeah, right. there's definitely different courses for different horses. Like I know a guy who's into a, an infra fund and, and I think he says, Oh, I'm going to go check out the dam where in China, like, okay. Yeah. But I mean, they're already buying it, but, um, so how about, uh, you let the genie out of the bottle of Dom. So Anthony, how about fees? Um, uh, Dom said yours, yours is a bit, bit light and you usually co-invest are, um, but how, how do you guys, um, how do you guys structure that? And then maybe what's the size of the, uh, the direct business and your, uh, and the Evergreen Fund? Yeah. So, uh, we, we do have a fairly unique structure and, uh, fee structure. And I have to say that it's, you know, I, I didn't really speak to, to the type of uh, portfolios that we built. We've, we've built a, a portfolio, a very low cost basis. And our, our goal as a co-investment group is acquiring from, from sellers who are selling for non-economic reasons. And you need to be flexible to do that because that might, you know, necessarily uh, happen, uh, you know, in, in mega cities or in, or in prime markets or anything like that. Yeah, you have to be able to go anywhere. And so if you're being able to acquire units uh, or rather um, uh, properties at very low cost basis, um, well, then all of a sudden it puts you in a situation where, you know, you're generating your returns from, from, uh, from, from, from the, the cash uh, being generated from each property and the refinances and the and the cash that you're able to pull off from from those individual properties, and so why I'm I'm, I'm kind of leading with that to, to talk about our fees is it's actually because of our fees that we're able to navigate um, the quieter markets. We we don't necessarily we we stay very far away from hotter markets like the New York Silicon Valley or anything like that. If you look at our portfolio, you know we're largest landlords in Kansas City, uh, largest landlords in uh, Columbus, Ooh. Ohio. Yeah, very sexy markets, right? But the reason <laughs> the reason why we spend so much time uh, acquiring, and we're not, you know, we don't have to be there. We, we can go wherever we're finding the best deals. Uh, but the reason why we, we have the ability to, to go to those markets and what's keeping other investors, other invest, or real estate investment groups out of those markets, uh, I think, Dominic, I think you spoke to that a little bit before, is, is that performance fee. 
And so we we stay away from charging anything of, of performance fee because if you charge a performance fee, inherently you are incentivized or you're, you're probably incentivized to sell, uh, right? Because you want to yeah. capture that performance fee. And so we, as real estate investors ourselves, don't see that as the best way to do it because you might not be selling at the right time and you might not be selling for the right reasons. And so the way we've opted to take our fee uh, which is uh, you know fairly unique, and again because we are real estate investors ourselves, is a one-time markup that happens upon the acquisition of the property. It's a it's a six percent markup. We take one hundred percent of the fees in units, so nothing in cash. So not only do we participate between five and twenty-five percent of our own equity in every deal, uh-huh. but also one hundred percent of our fees are tied to the performance of the of the actual underlying properties, and then nothing else ever happens again. So there's no management fee. There's no performance fee. And so having this structure not only aligns us with all our co-investors, but we're never going to be forced to sell. We'll sell, you know, when it comes time to sell or when, you know, when, when our assets have gone up in value, when it's like, okay, well guys, it makes sense to sell. Um, and in the meantime, we're just kind of sitting back and collecting our, our rent checks and our, you know, doing our refinances and pulling more equity out of our deals. And so that really aligns us with our investors, but also gives us the ability to not have to pigeonhole ourselves in hotter markets where you know some of the other real estate groups are, are investing in because they need to know that there's a market there in five years or seven years or whatever whatever you know whatever their shelf life is for their for their uh, for their investment product right and so that's what's giving us the ability to kind of navigate these quieter markets well that's wild that's kind of reminds me of like so hedge funds of course you know they they have fees that are accrued i think daily or at least monthly and and then you get paid out at the end of the year but yeah, you don't have to worry about actually selling the securities. You're going to get paid anyways because it's all mark to market. But this almost seems like you got a zero plus option where there's an embedded PV for you guys, but you don't even take the cash. Like you just throw it into more units. And I guess you're getting paid because of the rents that are kicking off yeah. at the yield. And then you have, you know, you can recap and you can or refi the stuff and be able to get your cash out there. So it's not like you're necessarily cash 100% poor. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, big time. Tons of different. Is laddered out maturities of all these things. Like you're going to sell it eventually. Even in Kansas City, you're going to sell. I mean, it, it's not going to go up forever. But uh, and then what, what sort of sectors are you? Uh, res or um, industrial, commercial, which is like the the dirty COVID word. Right now, or <laughs> yeah. What's what kind of stuff are you in? And don't don't tell me you have only the good stuff because I know there's probably something. <laughs> well, you know it's only the good stuff, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so it's it's uh, we're 100 office space um, and. We've built, again, our portfolio, you know, again, 100% office space uh, over uh, basically starting back in 2011. Um, That's kind of when we started buying office and and we never looked back. And, you know, there's a a couple of things there. So the nice thing about buying office is that it keeps a lot of the smaller investors out of Mm -hmm. the market, right? And if you're keeping uh, you know a certain segment of, of investors out of the market, well, there's less flow of funds, and if there's less flow of funds, it's you know uh, not driving up the bids as much. Versus, for instance, let's say in residential, you know, a lot more people could afford residential deals. Not so many people could afford you know 200 million or 2.2 million square foot office park, right? Like you're not you're not coming up against as many um, as many as many bidders, and so mm-hmm. that's one of the main drivers why we've been able to to acquire. Uh, such a, a high quality uh, portfolio, institutional quality deals at at the cap rates, you know, eight to ten cap uh, that, that that we have been. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and and again, you know, when you buy from sellers who are selling for non-economic reasons, 
maybe you know it's the end of their life their 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 the end of yep. their um, shelf life, right? And they just need to sell their, their last assets because they want to capture a performance fee. Well, we'll come in and provide that liquidity for them. Or more recently, what we've seen is maybe some REITs who are kind of in need of a cash injection and need liquidity and may be willing to offer assets. And so, hey, mm-hmm. well, you know, we're a private group. And uh, because we're, you know, a group of, of like-minded uh, investors acquiring real estate and, you know, acquiring real estate for a long term, uh, we have the ability to kind of come in and provide that liquidity for them. And uh, yeah, and so 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 we've we've essentially that that's where we've been spending our time, kind of building building uh, uh, building our portfolio. Yeah, and office spaces office space is obviously very topical right now as well. And so I think just uh, just even having conversations about office space and just forward looking basis in terms of how to tackle the opportunity set there is definitely is definitely of interest, right? So I think most people, even if they're just kind of tourists, they still want to understand like. You know why are people buying properties in, in, in Kansas City? Like, is there's there is such a thing as a as a as an eight cap right now? It's crazy, you know. So. Well, let's go to Anthony for the for the reasons for that. Why is there so much money to be made there? It's just because you guys buy so well, or is it just like I don't know? People think they want to pay New Jersey rents in Kansas or something. Like, how how does it work <laughs> on the economic side? <laughs> for, well, from an investor perspective. Uh, you know what? I'll say from a tenant's perspective, there's there's a there's been um, uh, I think secondary markets are actually starting to 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 come into flavor in the sense that there's definitely a lot of value to be had. I mean, if you're if you're renting out space, um, you know, downtown, I don't know, Manhattan or whatever, and you're paying 100, 110 bucks a square foot, you could probably get something in Kansas City around 20 bucks a square foot, right? And so. Uh, you know, and and then from an investor's perspective, well, there are companies who see that and that they're looking for that value. And obviously, if you know, if you're looking to cut a little bit of overhead, uh, and you know, you can, you can reduce the cost um, of 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 your of your overhead. Why wouldn't you? And that's actually some of the things that we've seen over the past you know, six or seven months is we've seen a lot of companies looking to set up hub and spokes. So from from a, a, a tenant's perspective, there's definitely the draw from the value. Uh, and then from an investor's perspective, uh, looking at real estate, just kind of going back down to, um, you know, why are you investing in real estate? And so, you know, the, a, a very common thing is to just kind of ride momentum and to, you know, ride momentum where you're going to be in the hotter markets. And, and that's typically where um, the momentum happens and, and, and there's sort of the full funds. But I think that, you know, as, as an investor, you really need to... Um, um, you know, ask yourself, you know, fundamentally, uh, you know, is there, um, uh, you know, is it a good investment or is it, you know, it's just a flow of funds that's driving up the underlying value of those properties. Mm-hmm. And so if we look at it and, and, you know, we've always seen, you know, Warren Buffett says, you know, buy a dollar for less than a dollar. If we can buy an asset, which is, is gen- the rents that you're collecting is generating, you know, so much free cash flow as a function of what you paid that property. You know, that we believe is a good investment. So if you're buying an asset because you're, you know, you're thinking about flipping in three years or four years or whatever, um, you know, yeah, you're going to have to ride the wave and, and go with momentum. And, and we have an expression, we say it's kind of like buying uh, a Honda Civic for $200,000 and then, you know, selling it for $300,000. It's like, well, yeah, you know, congratulations, you, you know, you made your money, but, you know, was that uh, asset yes. really worth $200,000, right? So, and and we kind of have the the total flip mentality to that is that well let's look at the fundamentals let's look at the the the, the quality the uh, you know the the quality of the tenants the the quality of the cash flow that's coming from these assets 
and 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 focus there. And so you know it's very difficult to find high quality uh, assets, you know, with with good fundamentals and not overpay in hotter markets. And so in Kansas City, Columbus, Ohio, that you know that's where we can navigate and go and. And the other thing I'll say to that is, you know, if MasterCard, you know, we have a bunch of tenants, MasterCard, DUG, uh, Raymond James. I mean, the rents that they're paying in New York, the check is just as good as the rents that they're paying in Kansas City and Columbus. And so, uh, you know, we, we, we that's why we're kind of happy in those markets and we're able to generate a ton of free cash flow. Uh, on average, we're generating anywhere between five and a half to eight uh, percent cash on cash from from our properties. So, um, yeah, it's very difficult to do that uh, if you're buying that in, 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 you know, the New Yorks of the world and, and so on. Wow. Yeah, the greater fool theory is probably not the best investment thesis out there. Yeah. Um, that's pretty cool. So let's get to the stuff that we've been talking about the last six months or so. COVID. How has this affected Kansas City office space in Columbus? Um, and this is it's nice. You have, the, you have the one thing, and I guess you got your specialist in it, and um, you're in markets that uh, that are not your typical, like, like they say, Manhattan. Everybody kind of goes so to New Jersey and Connecticut. Like all of our, a lot of our members have been doing Zooms with them from, from everywhere from Salem to uh, Florida. <laughs> even though they, uh, <laughs> even though they're uh, New York based. So, so how how has that affected uh, your markets? And uh, is what have you done maybe to mitigate it? And uh, let me go through the uh, the process over the last uh, six months or so. Yeah, so the, the, the two things that we've looked at and that we've been very, um, uh, you know, careful about has been the rent collection and the occupancy. And so, first off, rent collection has been very, very good. Um, going back in, starting in April, let's say that was the first month, uh, I guess, that COVID really had its impact. Our rent collection was at 96% back in April, but we've then gone back and collected some of the deferred rents because, you know, they're not excusable rents, they're just deferred. And so... That's kind of been the case month after month since April. So on average, if I look back at our rent collection um, since the beginning of, of COVID, we've been actually between 98 to 99% on average across our portfolio. Holy. And then the second thing to look at is occupancy, right? Because you want to make sure that your building stays leased up. And you know, one of the major, major concerns was, well, you know, are, are there bankruptcies? And so we haven't actually experienced any. As of yesterday, we actually have 1% uh square footage more leased up than we did in December of 2019. And uh, and the last thing I'll say, just kind of going back to, you know, our acquisition costs and, all, you know, all about the basis, right? Making sure that we're getting in at a low basis for, for acquisition costs. Had we lost, you know, 5, 10, even 15, even 20% in some, some of our buildings, had we lost 20% of our tenants or 20% of our rent collection uh, didn't, you know, we weren't able to collect it. Uh, we would have actually still been okay. Our debt would have still been, we would have still been able to pay our debt service because of our low cost basis um, versus, you know, some of, uh, some of the, you know, I'll tell you some families that I personally speak with um, where, you know, Group RMC is just one of the investments that they have on, and then they'll have other investments in hotter markets. You know, they had a lot of fires to put out because if you're buying a two cap or a three cap in, in uh, you know, Toronto, and things are going well, you're barely covering the debt service. Uh, imagine five or ten percent of your tenants don't pay, right? So, so, so we, we, you know, I think going back to the cost basis, we were, we were. That's really what helped us, kind of, even before going into COVID, what really put us in a in a, in a pretty good position to to handle uh, what came our way. So, Dom, how has how has COVID affected your business? And uh, obviously, the markets, so the prime side, the trading execution is uh, has gone went through some gyrations there, but. In the cap intro, how are you reaching out to investors? Uh, I think we'll go to Anthony for that too. Although we already, we already know it's his pitch, but 
so Don, how how are you how are you guys uh, uh, adapting to this this new world that we have? Probably, like I say, for another year or so, we'll see. Yeah, um, it's a, it's a good question. I would say in March, you know, it was very very. Se- I was sensitive to reach out to investors because they they have better things to do uh, than talk to me, frankly, right? So while while they're kind of taking out all the, all the fires of, of, of what was going on with their managers. But I would say come towards uh, April, I, I found that a lot of investors, because everyone's kind of cooped at home, some are obviously with their families and, you know, some are in cramped New York City apartments. Um, there's mm-hmm. more of a willingness uh, to engage, particularly with someone like myself or anyone within a cap interest who speaks to a lot of people and can obviously offer a, a very broad perspective in terms of what people are doing. And so I'd say, you know, the emails, maybe pre-COVID, someone would, you know, ask you to speak two weeks out or three weeks out. I would say now during COVID, it, it's the, the time to actually get somebody in a call is, you know, maybe you email them on Monday, they're available on Thursday, right? So yeah. No one's on a plane, so it's easier. Exactly, exactly. So I feel like people have a lot more time. Um, and, and then, you know, maybe they're just they just want to speak to people, right? I think everyone's kind of cooped up and they want to know what's going on. And so I would say reaching out on a one on one basis to get kind of a catch up call has not been an issue during COVID. Uh, obviously, you know, for a person like myself who covers Canada as well, it is very unfortunate that I literally can't just fly to Canada because the borders are closed. It's Mm -hmm. much better to meet people in person. Also, it gives you an excuse to reach out to people to tell them that you're, you're coming to their lovely country. And so I would say, uh, you know, that that's, that that's definitely challenging. Uh, Luckily for me, uh, you know, most people north of the border are a lot friendlier than the the people in the U.S. So, so they, they do tend to, (laughs) to respond back to me, which is, which is nice. Um, I'd say in the ways in which that we have tried to continue to be in front of them is obviously providing them, um, you know, we did kind of a converts and SPACs conference in June, which was actually very well attended by the Canadian investor community. Um, uh, we're going to be having, we're going to be having an upcoming SPACs panel, which, uh, again, I'm hoping uh, a lot of investors will tune into as well. Um, so, you know, providing some timely events, which are, which are relevant is always a plus. Um, and then I think, you know, trying to create like social zoom atmospheres, um, on the family office front, we're kind of beginning to talk about a way in which we could pitch some of these kind of uh, non-traditional hedge fund ideas. So litigation finance, co-investments, you know, maybe have an investor insight series dedicated to that aspect to, to kind of just cater to family offices. Um, so just trying to think of different ways in which to use like the virtual platform, mm-hmm. but to be aware that unfortunately um, that platform has been saturated. And so you have to, you have to provide something that, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think some of the breakout sessions post these events is great. And so um, uh, that's another thing that, that, that we're looking to incorporate. Um, but yeah, it's, you definitely have, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not going out having coffees or lunches or drinks with people, that's for sure. Uh, so we, you know, I think I did a, a virtual cocktail event uh, a couple of times, but I haven't ha- had the, the pleasure of drinking with somebody face to face since since at least uh, March. So it's definitely different. Yeah, you're right too. We we uh, you know, we did tons of webinars, but we for a conference like unless you can, you're usually there like both both of you are to in, in, engage with people, 
and they're there to meet you. So if you can't do that, then it's kind of tough. So we've always had the one-on-one meetings. We have table talks. And so we have these kind of little groups between like over an hour, like five or 50 people. And then some people have, again, like three or five to like 15 one-on-one meetings. So depending on how people want to engage. And if they don't, then great. It's like, just like, you know, hey, I'm not really into whatever this is. Uh, then, uh, then that's no problem because everybody can kind of go on with life sort of thing. But um, to not have any chance of interaction is kind of kind of tough. Um, yeah. We're having like a huge Zoom room where people are trying to talk over each other. It's, uh, yeah, so we've always been trying to figure out how that would work. So I know I it's looking for advice. Yeah, and another thing that I, that I always try to do is, um, you know, every every investor, whether they use Wells Fargo or any other cap venture team to source investment ideas, at the end of the day, they're the ones underwriting and, and thinking about what makes the most sense for the firm. So I always tell investors, um, you know, feel free to utilize me as a, as a means by which to access other allocators who have looked or invested in whatever manager that is. So a lot of times I try to help triangulate kind of off the off the cuff references for allocators with other allocators. So I think I just recently did that with actually uh, a family office up in, up in Canada, uh, connected them with somebody who, who I know in London who has like an, an investment in one of the funds that they were looking at. And so, you know, I, I like to hopefully think that I could be at least an extension of like their due diligence process to the extent that they want to utilize that. And so it's just another way to, to kind of help people out and, I, I, I thought about that more from my allocator side when I was an investor. I, I always like to talk to other investors that were within, mm-hmm. you know, the same investment that I was looking at to, to, to get their understanding. And, and it's also just good to know other LPs. Yeah, you're right. And they all have their own kind of flavors. If, if you have somebody who's a specialist in some area, like real estate, group pharmacy, then, um, you know, they say, hey, we'll talk to these guys, uh, whether it's a family office or someone with a, with a fund. And you guys kind of have both, of course, Anthony. Uh, well, this has been really, uh, really quite cool to have you both on here. And uh, we're getting close to the end of our time. So if you have any uh, parting comments uh, on, uh, on where where investors should look, Anthony will probably say uh, just just outside Kansas City because he's probably uh, bought the whole city now. But w- w- what do you think, Anthony? And then we'll go over to uh, Don. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I would say that, uh, you know, I guess, not even so much, I mean, whatever you're investing in, but I'll speak from a real estate investment perspective. But I mean, I guess focus on what you can control and that, you know, we see it very important to focus on the price, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're, you know, if your returns are predicated on the sale, then, you know, you're, you're leaving a lot of ifs and buts up in the air. So uh, we, you know, we, we have always had that philosophy to make your money on the buy. And so, yeah, I mean, where we're, 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 mm-hmm. where we're finding our opportunity right now, and, and this also has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, we're just a bunch of a bunch of real estate families acquiring assets together is, um, you know, investors have often, and the crux of where we've often found our deals are investors seeking, you know, liquidity or seller selling for non-economic reasons. And I think because of COVID that actually has amplified a lot of situations. And so, um, you know, we're at, we're, we're, we're personally uh, sifting through 40 deals at, at one and doing due diligence on 40 deals at one time right now. So, um, yeah, I think, I think once, once, uh, once COVID hit, um, there was a lot of opportunities that came to the market. So that's where we're looking right now is just, you know, making sure that we're doing proper due diligence and making sure that we're getting in at, uh, ultra low cost basis, the way, you know, the way we always have. And Dom, to the thousands of people you talk to. <laughs> so, I mean, and in one sense, when, when, when I think about everyone I talk to, uh, I could definitely give you 
give you that common truth. But I would also say when it comes to real estate and office, um, a lot of times, right, like at the end of the day, the places that are hit the most or most center square, um, a lot of people might run away from. But a lot of times those present some of the greatest opportunities that like exist. So, uh, I mean, I'll leave, like, I'll leave like the real estate for Anthony and all the experts. But, but I do think real estate is definitely an interesting place. And, and we've seen allocators look at it from a co-investment perspective, from a REIT perspective, um, and from a private, obviously, real estate perspective as well. So that, that's certainly an, 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 an interesting place to, to hunt for ideas. Um, places where, uh, you know, from a hedge fund, from a more public markets perspective, and then also maybe some privates as well, uh, things that have came up over the course of the last six months have certainly been uh, late stage privates. Uh, you know, that's been uh, an area ripe of opportunity, uh, mm. whether or not it's frothy, who knows, but I would say there's been a lot of co-investments uh, pitched within late stage privates for sure. Um, the other area which we've kind of seen a bit more interest has been kind of in, in convertibles and SPACs, as I kind of mentioned before. A lot of a lot of the managers in that space have done significantly well. Um, again, people might think SPACs are becoming frothy as well. So you know, it might be it might be either something that's frothy or maybe it's here to stay. And so we'll kind of we'll kind of see on that front. Um, I would say there's always an interest for people looking at biotech and getting long, you know, life sciences, innovation that has not changed uh, one bit, you know, pre-COVID, post-COVID. It's probably one of the most uh, requested sectors that we see from a public markets perspective uh, and frankly, even on the private side as well. And so I think that that's certainly an area of interest. And then the other aspect, which I would say that has popped up and it really is more broad. It would be just sort of like esoteric income stream. So um, whether it's kind of a royal healthcare royalties or, you know, litigation finance or, you know, uh, anything within kind of especially finance arena, anything that spits off like an uncorrelated income stream just due to the fact that obviously uh, yields are at historical lows. I feel as though people are looking for fixed income alternatives to, uh, to, to, to figure out what they want to do now going forward. And so that has been another area of interest uh, that has certainly increased over, you know, the last couple months for sure. Wow. Not, no loss for, uh, for opportunities. That's fantastic. That's good to hear because, uh, yeah, it looks like the, the sky was falling for a little bit there. But then uh, <laughs> yeah, there's always there's always some, some sort of opportunity. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, Dom. Um, uh, thank you. Thanks for the thank time you together, guys, and we'll look forward to having you guys in another podcast uh, sometime soon. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that. <laughs>